You're listening to audio from Trinity West Seattle. For other resources, more information about this sermon series, or to connect with us, visit our website, www.trinityws.com. Father God, we thank you so much for speaking to us in your word. As we come to this season of Advent, and we even look today at this theme of hope, we confess, God, that we are a people desperately in need of hope. God, we we desperately need to cling to a hope that is greater than the ones that we so often turn to. We so often choose to cope instead of needing to hope. And so today I pray, God, you would give us true hope in you and what you have promised. And I ask it in Jesus' name, amen. So let's turn now to God's word in Luke chapter 1. I'll begin to read in verse 1. It says, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. So in these first few verses of Luke's gospel, we learn a little bit about why he wrote it and what uh, he hoped to accomplish with it. He was writing to a guy, it said, named Theophilus, which was probably an actual person, someone who probably converted to Christianity and was most likely some sort of a Roman leader. That's why he uses this, uh, this title, Most Excellent. That would have been used for Roman leaders in that day. But we also know that there's a chance that Luke here was using some sort of a literary device, that the name Theophilus means lover of God. And so Luke may have been writing this to anyone who is a lover of God, anyone who is a Christian, and he writes then uh, to not only to Theophilus, but also to all Christians. Now, we know about Luke not only from his own gospel and through church history, but also because he wrote the book of Acts. And, and through all of these different resources, we learned that Luke was a historian He was also a physician, so he's like a doctor in the first century, and scholars can tell by his writing that he was highly educated, so he's probably from a wealthy family, but he was also a Gentile, so he's not a Jew, and he is someone who was a second-generation Christian, so he became a Christian probably based off of his parents' faith. He's a generation removed from the events of the life of Jesus. And so you can imagine getting into Luke's head for a minute as a guy like that, who's a Gentile in the, in the late first century, someone who has become a Christian uh, as a Gentile, wanting to know more about who this Jesus is that he has come to worship. And so he went out and he set out as an historian to, to capture a legit historical record of what God accomplished and fulfilled through Jesus' incarnation, through his life and his ministry, through his death, through his burial, and through his resurrection. And so Luke tells us specifically 
that he has written this gospel, it says in verse 4, so that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. And so the goal of Luke's gospel and then now the goal of this sermon series is to share with you an eyewitness account of the events surrounding the birth of Jesus so that you can know with certainty the story of Jesus is both real and true. This is trustworthy history in this book. So let's get into today's story. That's kind of an overview of this series. Let's get into today's story specifically beginning in verse 5. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron who were also priests, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. Now this, this phrase, advanced in years, you gotta, you gotta love that because in our culture we don't see age as something positive. But in that culture they really recognized God's grace on those who are advanced in years, as it says. We wouldn't, we wouldn't use that kind of a language, that kind of a euphemism, but that's really how it was seen. Somebody who's older is advanced in years. And now here's the context that we're dealing with. The year is roughly 6 B.C. Herod the Great is king, and this is an evil dude. We'll talk a little bit more about him in just a moment. At this time, it's been almost... 400 years since God spoke to his people, the nation of Israel, through one of his prophets. And since then, uh, they've been overtaken by the Roman powers. And even this king, if you want to call him that, Herod the Great, he's really a puppet king. He was put there by the Roman authorities. And so God's people now are surrounded by corruption and oppression They're unable to see a way forward. God's people would have struggled to hold on to hope. And then we learn now of another uh, set of characters, Zechariah and Elizabeth, and this all takes place, we later learn, in the hill country of Judea, which is kind of like a hick town in in, uh, Judea. And there's this older couple, they're probably... Aged beyond the ability to conceive, Zechariah, who's a priest, and his wife, Elizabeth. And Elizabeth is a lot like Israel would have been. She was struggling to hold on to hope. Have you ever been in a circumstance that seemed hopeless? One where you just could not possibly see a way forward. Elizabeth was barren which in that day meant a lot more than just, I wish I could have a child. I mean, your, your kids were your security, your insurance policy, your retirement account. Everything was tied up and wrapped up into that. And more than that, it was seen as a way of God showing His favor and His blessing to you. But Elizabeth was barren. She was, she was waiting. She was longing. She was not only longing for a child for her own family, but with all of Israel, Elizabeth is 
is hoping and longing for the Messiah to come and to save his people from these worldly powers, these enemies who had occupied their nation. But why weren't Zechariah and Elizabeth able to conceive? Was it maybe because they had done something wrong? Well, Luke points out that Elizabeth and her husband were righteous, verse, verse, uh, verse 6 there, they were righteous and blameless, and he does so because in that day there would have been an assumption that if you were barren, it was because God was punishing you for your sin. But we see that something bigger was going on than simply God punishing Zechariah and Elizabeth for their sin because they were righteous and blameless before him. There was a different reason and a greater purpose for the barrenness, which we will find out about here shortly. Verse 8, now while he was serving as a priest before God, and when his division was on duty according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot, that's kind of like rolling of the dice, to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people, and we don't know how many multitude that is, that could be hundreds of people, maybe thousands of people, might be all of Jerusalem gathered together, we just don't know, but it's a lot of people. They were praying outside as he went in at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. So this angel who shows up, we later learn, is Gabriel, and he appears to Zechariah in this special time and place in the temple where God's presence dwelt on earth. This is the center of the universe here in this temple where God meets with humankind. This is where heaven intersects with earth. And we learn that as Zechariah goes in alone, to perform his duties, he encounters Gabriel in a very specific location. He's on the right side of the altar where Zechariah was supposed to be burning this incense. And Zechariah's response to the sight of this angel is much like your response or my response would be if we were to see an angel. Here's what happens. Verse 12, and Zechariah was troubled when he saw him and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah. For your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. This is going to be John the Baptist. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the people, for the Lord, a people prepared. This is an amazing privilege. Zechariah gets to be the father of a prophet sent from God, filled with the Spirit all the way from his mother's womb. His son John would not only be a major source of joy for him and Elizabeth, but also for many others. 
And he would have a very specific job to do. He would come to fulfill Old Testament prophecies in preparing the people to receive the Messiah. Prophecies like we find in Isaiah chapter 40. And as exciting as all of this sounds, and, and it should be, Zechariah is afraid. But he's told that he doesn't need to be because God has actually heard his prayer. Now, we don't know exactly what prayer this was referring to. Was it perhaps a prayer that Zechariah was offering up right then and there? We, we aren't sure. But we do know that the child was an answer to his prayer. Now, the likelihood is, is that Zechariah and Elizabeth had prayed for hundreds, if not thousands of times, that God would open Elizabeth's womb and provide a child for them. At this point, they were so old, though, that it probably had been years, if not decades, since they had asked God for a baby. Now, in addition to praying for a baby, Zechariah and Elizabeth would have been regularly praying with all of Israel for the Messiah to come and to rescue them. And so this child was an answer to both of those prayers. And through this, we learn that Elizabeth's barrenness had a purpose. It had a purpose. The purpose was that God would use it for His great plan of redemption, that the people would be prepared for the Messiah to come. Now, if you had been praying for something for decades, something that seemed completely impossible to you, and one day an angel shows up, and he says, you know, God, God got your message, wanted you to know, <laughs> and his answer is both yes and now, how would you respond? Would you not just be completely overwhelmed with joy and excitement? Now, I, I've never seen an angel before, I don't know if you have, but I'd like to think that if I were in Zechariah's shoes, I'd run over to that angel, I'd give him a big old hug, right? <laughs> I'd just be so thrilled and excited. Now, I don't know, maybe it's a really bad idea to hug angels because they're like surrounded in glory and maybe you catch on fire or something like that. I just don't know. But how does Zechariah respond? Verse 18 tells us, And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I'm an old man and my wife is advanced in years, he uses that phrase again, advanced in years, right? Zechariah seems to think that this news is just too good to be true. There's no way that this could be what God is doing now. Zechariah has apparently lost hope. He doesn't go and, and hug the angel. He actually asks him a question, and it's a question that comes from a heart of unbelief. And Zechariah thinks that he needs a sign in order to believe, in order to have hope. And so how do you think Gabriel is going to respond to Zechariah's question? Verse 19, and the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. So Gabriel throws down. He drops the mic, you know? And, and, and this gives us a glimpse, just a glimpse, of how incredible that this interaction is. 
Gabriel stands, he says, in the presence of Almighty God. He is constantly surrounded with the splendor of God's holiness and His beauty and His majesty beyond anything that any of us could ever imagine. And this same God has sent him as a messenger on his behalf. Gabriel is the mouthpiece of God. It's like God himself is speaking. And so I think he's a little perturbed. I think he's a little frustrated with Zechariah's unbelief. What does he do? Verse 20. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you did not believe my words which will be fulfilled in their time. Zechariah thinks that he needs a sign in order to believe, and Gabriel gives him one. It's just not the one that he was looking for. (laughs) The sign was discipline for his doubt. You ever been disciplined by God? Yeah. If you're a Christian, you have, whether you realize it or not, You have been disciplined by God, and if you have realized it, you've observed what the Bible teaches us, which is that it doesn't feel good at the time, but it is good for you. It is the best thing for you because it's done out of God's love and for your good. Now, Zechariah may have wanted to believe that this great news was true, but he just couldn't bring himself to do so. He believed he needed more evidence than even a miracle encounter with an angel. Meanwhile, we've got to remember there's more people that are in this story, verse 21, and the people were waiting for Zechariah. They're outside going, what? I thought this was an hour of incense. What is going on with that guy? Where is he? And he was unable to speak to them when he came out. And they, oh, sorry, I'm jumping ahead. Uh, they were waiting for Zechariah and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. Sometimes people had gone in and they were supposed to meet with God and they were supposed to do things like lighting incense and they get lit on fire. So these people are going, where is he? Is he okay? And verse 22, when he came out, he was unable to speak to them and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. He kept making signs to them, and he remained mute. Now, I'll be honest. I think that this is a little bit funny. I don't want to, like, be uh, mean and, and think, you know, celebrate Zachariah's demise or anything like that, but can you imagine if you couldn't speak, if you didn't know sign language, you just had this crazy encounter with an angel that you're still, still reeling from as you come outside and you're trying to communicate to this whole multitude of people who have been waiting for you of what just happened. How do you even do that? How do, I don't know what the signal for angels is. I mean, do they have wings or something? Although we know angels don't actually have wings. Um, do you, how, do you, how do you communicate that you just learned that your wife's going to have a prophet son? Is this the, the prophet son signal? Or how do you even say Messiah. I'm guessing that the people, as he came out, while they understood that he had a vision, I'm guessing they didn't quite get the message. And in verse 23, we see the end of this part of the story. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. 
After these days, his wife, Elizabeth, conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. So this is a natural conception, even though there's a miracle at work here. Zechariah, though he didn't seem to believe Gabriel, he must have believed him enough to do his part here, if you know what I'm saying. And Elizabeth, after she conceives, she doesn't go around telling everybody about it. We don't really know why. Maybe she was afraid of losing the child and being ashamed again. Maybe she was just enjoying the gift quietly, just, man, this is, I've been waiting my whole life for this. This is incredible. I'm just going to be quiet and, and alone at home. Maybe she was really sick and she was in bed. We just, we just don't know. But in any case, word has not gotten out about what is going on here. And for these first five months, Zechariah and Elizabeth are the only ones who know. And this is important for our story next week, and we'll come back to that as we do. But Elizabeth very clearly believes God for what he said he would do. And Elizabeth conceives as promised, and she even recognizes how this gift of God would affect the way that she is viewed by others. Remember, this is a shame and honor culture. And as we said earlier, many people would have had the misconception that if you were barren, it was because God was punishing you for your sin. But we learned Elizabeth and Zechariah were blameless. They were righteous, right? And so now she sees that she will be vindicated now that her barrenness has ended. God has answered her prayer. He has looked upon her with favor. Finally, these years of waiting are over, or at least almost over. She's got a few more months left. She must have been so happy, so much anticipation, so much joy during this pregnancy. You can just imagine it. But that's Elizabeth and that's Zechariah. How does this story actually give us hope? How can we join them in hoping in God? Well, this story gives us hope because in John's arrival, that's their son, John the Baptist, God was fulfilling promises that he had made about the Messiah. The, the, these, these promises that were already thousands of years old at that time. And yet we have also been waiting for thousands of years for Christ's return. So just as they waited for promises to be fulfilled, we too are waiting for promises to be fulfilled. You see, this is the only gospel account of Zechariah and Elizabeth. And Luke has placed it here very deliberately. He's a master storyteller. He's building all of this tension for us. We're joining with all of Israel. We're joining with Zechariah and Elizabeth in longing and waiting and hoping. And through this story, Luke wants us to remember another monumental story and a very similar situation that has already happened, the story of Abraham and Sarah. You guys might have already been thinking about that. Like, yeah, this kind of feels a bit familiar, right? 
we can see strong allusions to their story, almost as if Luke is saying, God already did this thousands of years earlier, and here he goes again. He is faithful. He is trustworthy. We can trust him. And we need to remember this, because just like Abraham and Sarah, just like Zechariah and Elizabeth, just like all of Israel, we are a people in need of hope. And if you're a person who's faced great adversity in your life, you're with those amens that I just heard. That's easy for you to say. You're like, yeah, of course. Yeah, bring on the hope. Give it to me now. I need some right now. But for many others, it might be harder for you to embrace that truth. Like, why? Why do we need hope? Maybe, maybe you're someone who focuses a lot on the positive side of things. Maybe you're somebody who sees all the ways that we are blessed as Christians, and indeed we are. You go, I don't, I don't need any hope, do I? So let me, let me address that for just a moment. This idea that we are blessed, and we are. We are tremendously blessed. Blessed because we, as we read this story of Zechariah and Elizabeth, we know how it's going to unfold. We know the rest of the story that Christ, the King, the Messiah, has come. That He has conquered our enemies when He died on the cross for our sins. That the Bible says that in Him we have received every spiritual blessing, not one. Not some, every spiritual blessing. And so we are blessed, church. We are blessed. We've received salvation and new life. We've received the gift of the Holy Spirit in us. We've been adopted into God's family as Christians. And we've been a, become a part of his church. So praise God. Praise God. We have so much to celebrate he has blessed us tremendously, even as we looked at last, last Sunday, as we had our Thanksgiving service, and we got to enjoy so many uh, present-day evidences of God's grace and blessing. But part of his perfect plan was for Christ to rise from his death, to ascend into heaven, in order to then patiently allow a lot of time to go by, 2,000 years so far, until his return. So that as many people as possible from as many cultures, classes, countries, and colors would have a chance to come into the Messiah's kingdom, which means that his perfect plan involves us waiting until his return. I mean, have you ever thought about this? Why do we sing that song, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, during Advent? You ever thought about that? O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel, who mourns in lonely exile here until the Son of God appeared. Why, why would we sing that, right? It's because, like Israel, we are still waiting on God to come and fulfill everything that, he's that He promised until he's accomplished everything. Because though Jesus has come and he has blessed us and he has accomplished so much, we all know the world remains a bleak,
bleak, broken place. And so we need help. Some of you are still saying, really? I mean, I've got unending entertainment. I have a house. I have a job. I have more food than I could ever eat. And believe me, I tried this last week. Is it really so bad? Well, what about the nations who are at war with nations? What about people who are killing people, even right here in our own fair city? What about addiction, the opioid crisis? What about abuse? What about world leaders misusing their power and oppressing their people? What about the broken relationships that we have that there isn't forgiveness and reconciliation? What about sexual promiscuity and confusion? What about children who don't have parents? What about the destruction of the environment? What about the widespread misuse of money? What about people who are today without food or water? What about those who have all of those things and yet are still filled with sorrow and depression or sickness? What about when we face death? What about what's going on in Haiti and Sudan and Ethiopia? What about what's happening in China and Afghanistan and North Korea? Or what's, what about what's happening here in our own country? Some of you are saying, maybe, what about what's happening with me? I'm in the middle of suffering. I'm facing fears, sickness, depression, the loss of loved ones. Maybe some of the things I've mentioned, you yourself have experienced. Friends, we try to sanitize all of that. Because if we don't, we fear the despair could cripple us. And so what do we do? We just think to ourselves, sanitize it. Uh, yeah, it's just, it's just another war. I mean, just another active shooter at a school. Just another victim of AIDS. Just another starving child. I guess it's, it's just how it is. It's how it always will be. See, we begin to live as though what we are waiting for is never going to happen. We begin to accept things the way that they are instead of longing for something better. We don't hope, we cope. But sanitizing it is actually just one way that we do this. We, we, we have all kinds of different coping mechanisms that that we depend on to get us by so that we don't have to hope as we live in a broken world. And so let's look at this a little bit more deeply. How do we choose coping rather than hoping? Coping, not hoping. Sanitization, as I mentioned, that's the first one. That's just one of many. Another one is sedation, which says ignorance is bliss. Sedation is where we fill our lives with so much stuff, things like comforts, like I listed off earlier, or even fill our lives with chaos 
so much so that we're just too distracted to notice or remember how bad things truly are. It's kind of like, la, 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 it's not so bad. I don't have to listen to it. I don't have to see it. It's this insulation that we put around ourselves. And man, we do this so often in the holiday season, don't we? We pad our lives from needing to hope with sedation. Or maybe we turn to optimism, which is trying to see the best possible outcome in a situation. And don't get me wrong, optimism is great. I I need more people who are optimistic around me because I can tend to be uh, the opposite, okay? So praise the Lord for those of you guys who are optimistic. But optimism is a weak replacement for hope. Sometimes then we go, okay, well, I'm going to turn to wishful thinking because we grew up on Disney movies, right? So when you wish upon a star, it makes no difference who you are. I'm going to just be wishful. That's like hoping, right? No. It actually does nothing to give us true hope. And some of you guys who are sitting here today, you're like, yeah, you tell them. Tell all those silly, optimistic, wishful thinking people, because I'd rather just be cynical and skeptical about everything. (laughs) And I understand. I can relate to you. But you know what? That doesn't work either. That puts you in league with Zechariah, okay? Because cynicism and skepticism are basically just disbelief and doubt, And so I want you to see that all of these things on this list, and I'm sure you could list off more if we had more time, they cannot replace our need for hope because we need to have confidence. As human beings, we need to have confidence that there is a bright future ahead. And the good news is, God has promised us one. You see, hope is believing God for the future that He has promised. And so what would happen if we didn't turn to sanitation or sedation or optimism or wishful thinking or skepticism or cynicism? What would happen if we didn't use these coping mechanisms? What would happen if we stopped coping? I believe we would start hoping. We would begin to feel our desperate need for Christ to return. We would have a fresh sense of longing for Him to come. We would begin to see more clearly that there is no other way for Him to make things right unless He comes and makes them right. Do you know that's exactly what He's promised? He's going to return, the Bible says, and all wars will cease. Isaiah promises us this. It says that the lion will lie down with the lamb. What a picture of peace. Isaiah says that people will stop killing each other, and instead they'll beat their swords into plowshares, that they will use instruments that used to be used for human death and destruction and instead use them for human flourishing. What a beautiful picture. 
Christ will come and he will make a new heavens and a new redeemed earth and all evil will be completely eradicated. It will all be met with his perfect justice and there will be no more addiction and abuse. No more corrupt leaders. No. No more oppression. No more hatred. No more broken, unreconciled relationships. No more sexual deviance. No more children without parents. No more ecological destruction and mayhem. No more misspent money. No more hunger or thirst. No more sickness or death. <laughs> Thank you. The Bible says he will wipe away every tear from every eye. And friends, as Christians, we have the hope that we will then get to spend eternity with God. Can you picture it? Can you picture it? So do not settle for coping with this broken world. Never get used to it. This Advent season, along with enjoying all the ways that God blesses us, and please do enjoy them. I'm not saying don't enjoy them. But along with that, allow yourself to face the reality of all the people and all the things that still need His redemption. Allow yourself to feel it enough that you actually long for Him to return. Allow yourself to feel it enough that you step away from all of that coping and you begin to make a here and now kingdom impact in every way that God allows you to. Allow your heart to embrace the reality that apart from Him, there is no hope, but in Him, there is true hope. There is lasting hope. We might ask the question, well, okay, but did Zechariah and Elizabeth have hope? I would say, for Zechariah, probably not yet. But after God disciplines him for a while, yeah. <laughs> yeah, he'll, he'll get there eventually. But in, in the story, I think already Elizabeth's hope was beginning to peek through. And we'll see in the story next week that that's indeed true. Elizabeth believed Gabriel's message. She believed it, and, and we see that she definitely had hope and was hoping for something more than just this child. She was actually looking forward to the coming of the Messiah. God's power and His plan, it was coming together. And this son that she was going to have would be a prophet like Elijah, who would prepare a way for the Messiah. And so she wasn't just thinking about, okay, I'm not barren anymore. She was thinking, Israel is not barren anymore. The Messiah is finally coming. And we need to remember this story of Zechariah and Elizabeth because when we believe in what God has done, we will have hope for what He will do. That's the big idea today. When we believe in what God has done, we will have hope for what he will do. If we truly believe that God made this barren old woman conceive a son who's a prophet and a forerunner to the Messiah and that the Messiah has come in humility 
that He has lived, that He has died on our behalf, that He has risen in glory and ascended to His heavenly throne. If we really believe that, then we will have hope in His return. Let's pray. Father God, we thank You for the ways in which You bless us and You grace us that you have given us every spiritual blessing that are available to us today. Thank you, God. I pray for those here who don't know you yet, that they would get to enjoy those blessings along with those of us who do know and love you. Give them that grace today, I pray, God. And for the rest of us, Lord, as we do enjoy these blessings and we get to experience this foretaste of the future, would God, you also make us keenly aware of our need for you to return. Help us to hope in you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to audio from Trinity West Seattle. For more information about our services or to connect with us, visit our website, www.trinityws.com. Thanks for listening.